The information and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ASRM and its affiliates. These podcasts are provided as a source of general information and are not a substitute for consultation with a physician. PCOS is actually the most common endocrine disorder among reproductive age women. In 2010, according to the WHO, it estimated 116 million women worldwide have PCOS. It has been 30 years since the National Institutes of Health issued criteria on polycystic ovary syndrome, or PCOS, and we talk about the most recent updated guidelines today on the podcast. Welcome to ASRM Today, a podcast that takes a deeper dive into the current topics in reproductive medicine. I am Jeffrey Hayes. Today on the podcast, I talk with Dr. Jennifer Knutson. I was curious about the history of diagnosing PCOS, and I took this opportunity to ask her about it. So this is interesting. As early as the mid-18th century, Italian scientists actually described a married and fertile woman that had shiny ovaries with a white surface and actually had cysts the size of pigeon eggs. But really from there, um, in 1937, Stein and Leventhal described this case series of patients. They had amenorrhea, hirsutism, polycystic ovaries. And, you know, they've really been regarded as the first investigators of PCOS and hence its original name, the Stein-Leventhal syndrome. Before we discuss this any further, why is PCOS an issue? Well, PCOS is actually the most common endocrine disorder among reproductive age women. In 2010, according to the WHO, it estimated 116 million women worldwide have PCOS. From the fertility view, when a woman is infertile due to lack of ovulation, PCOS is usually the most common diagnosis. You know, PCOS, it's a syndrome. It's not a specific disease that affects just one organ. Women with PCOS may need lifelong treatment for different associated conditions. So, you know, defining the treatment and really individualizing it to the patient is really important. How do women with PCOS usually present to your clinic? Yeah, I see them present in uh, various ways. And sometimes, you know, just in the beginning, either they're referred. You know, I see a lot of patients read about us on blogs. You know, patients go to the internet and they're like, I want an REI specialist. They look at my website, see I do PCOS. And a lot of times that's how they get in the door. A few examples, say there's a 28-year-old female She comes in and she says, you know, I have this beard and I have to shave it every other day. And she really wants to, you know, fix it. Um, And then she's like, yeah, my periods are irregular, you know, non-interested in fertility. And from there, that's when we kind of talk about PCOS and do the evaluation and really, you know, exclude any other conditions that might be causing it. Other patients have presented, you know, 32-year-old, hasn't been pregnant before, already has the diagnosis of PCOS. Um, and wants to start fertility treatment. That's a common one we see in our fertility practice. A patient that presented, you know, recently to me in a little bit different fashion or had a little bit different course, um, but just to show kind of the breadth of PCOS. I had a 37-year-old that came, you know, had amenorrhea, hadn't had her period for over six months, had seen someone else for PCOS, wanted a second opinion, 
She was really concerned that her progesterone was low, which, you know, we, we hear that and talk about that with our patients. But due to her history, we did an endometrial biopsy and actually diagnosed cancer. These patients, you know, it really is a syndrome. They present different ways, kind of treatment, you know, ends up in different places. And it really is just important kind of defining the goals and really listening to the patient when they come in. What diagnostic criteria have been used? Yeah, so there have been kind of three main efforts. But, you know, it's important to kind of state, you know, over time it's changed. You know, when we talk about the Stein and Leventhal, that was very clinical, right? And as technology changes and, you know, we have more information at our fingertips, you know, we've used some serum blood work, you know, now we use more ultrasound as part of the criteria. But specifically, the three efforts, the first was in 1990 with NIH, and we, you know, usually regard as the NIH criteria. Really, they had a consensus workshop, which concluded that hyperandrogenism, menstrual dysfunction, and then exclusion of other disorders were the major diagnostic criteria. And then in 2003 was Rotterdam in the Netherlands, uh, is where the meeting was held. It was with ASHRAE and ASRM representatives. And this is, they changed the criteria a little, recommending that when Meeting the diagnosis, the patient has two of three criteria, and adding on to the Rotterdam, they added ultrasound, so the follicular count by ultrasound. And this really created a wider definition in collecting the diagnosis. And then in 2006, so three years after the Rotterdam, the Androgen Excess and PCOS Society really tightened their criteria, and they required that the patient um, had excess androgen activity. Where are we now with the diagnosis of PCOS? You know, there was a need for a new guideline just with new technology. The diagnosis, you know, is still controversial. Um, It's a little challenging in some patients. And really trying to incorporate international evidence for the assessment and management of PCOS led to new guidelines being developed. And so these were actually published in um, 2018. And, you know, they were published in three journals simultaneously. So it was Fertility and Sterility, Human Reproduction, and the Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism. So these authors stated, you know, the diagnosis of PCOS can be controversial and the management and assessment can be inconsistent. So they put together this governance, which actually, you know, was international with six continents on the advisory committee, including over 71 countries. And they had different multidisciplinary panels, development groups. I mean, really took a lot of advisory and advice from experts across the world. You know, I think one thing they did in these guidelines that is important to note is they really tried to categorize the recommendations. So when you go through and look at it, there's evidence-based recommendations, clinical consensus, and then clinical practice points to help guide practitioners. They also use quality of evidence categories to really kind of, when you're reading the evidence-based parts, to know, okay, you know, this is really high evidence, this is low evidence, because as a practitioner, kind of taking the guidelines and then bringing them into clinical care, it's important to know kind of where they came from and how to kind of incorporate into your own clinical acumen. With so many wonderful new guidelines, what are the highlights then from these new guidelines? Yeah, you know, I think the ones that are most commonly talked about 
is, you know, the first is kind of that refinement of the diagnostic criteria. Really with the improvement of ultrasound, it lets us be able to see the follicles with a different resolution. And so the guidelines have recommend considering using 20 antral follicles per ovary compared to previously with Rotterdam, it was 12. And so that's a change incorporating it into the Rotterdam criteria. Another one is recommending metformin for adult women with PCOS with a BMI over 25 or above. And so that's um, you know, important to consider. And I liked how they really emphasized multidisciplinary treatment and quality of life. So there were, you know, there's recommendations on counseling on obesity, addressing obstructive sleep apnea, uh, mental illness, you know, including depression and anxiety. All those are incorporated in there and more, you know, which I think, you know, a lot of times as a gynecologist, I focus on fertility, you know, irregular periods, hirsutism. And I think um, having more kind of structured guidelines into really treating the whole patient and incorporating other multidisciplinary um, recommendations is very important and appreciated. Do the new guidelines then discuss fertility treatments? Yes, they address different fertility treatments, ovulation induction, and they incorporate some of the evidence-based practices from PPCOS2 and the Reproductive Medicine Network. They also have a lot of recommendations for IVF, and they touch on metformin, GnRH antagonists, GnRH agonists for trigger, and considering freeze-alls of all embryos. So there's a lot of different clinical consensus, practice points, and evidence-based recommendations. Based on your experience and your expertise, are there any other resources that you would recommend? Yeah, there's a lot of great resources out there. You know, I think these guidelines do a good job, you know, giving us places to start in our practice and incorporating different diagnostic or just a starting place for where we should start the evaluation or treatment on certain things. You know, I think ASRM has great practice bulletins on the exogenous gonadotropins for inovulatory women. Um, and the role of metformin for ovulation induction in PCOS. And so these are other resources um, when I'm counseling patients or even teaching residents or fellows I use. What do we still need to overcome to help these patients? Yeah, you know, I see patients that come to my clinic and they're not pursuing fertility and they almost apologize for being there or ask if they're in the right place because, you know, it says fertility clinic out front. So I think especially for PCOS patients that feel like they don't belong at a fertility clinic, um, really giving them a medical home where they can have all these different multidisciplinary issues addressed. And then also, you know, developing multidisciplinary clinics or referral systems so we can facilitate their care other than just fertility. So what is being done? Yeah, so actually this year, to bring more support to women with PCOS, ASRM and Resolve partnered for the Advocacy Day, and one of their key pieces of legislation was starting a PCOS Awareness Month. So I think it's, you know, very important for us to empower the women with PCOS to really talk about their health and be involved, and if, you know, they're not getting their questions or concerns addressed in one place, really to, you know, make sure that they speak up and um, make sure that they're meeting the goals that they hope their medical care meets. Dr. Knutson, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to be with us today. 
thank you for inviting me and having this opportunity. That was Dr. Jennifer Knutson, an associate professor at UT Health San Antonio in obstetrics and gynecology and reproductive endocrinology and infertility. Until next time, I'm Jeffrey Hayes, and this is ASRM Today. This concludes this episode of ASRM Today. For show notes, other information, and discussions, go to asrmtoday.org. 